Your genes and the genes of the microbes that live inside you have a significant effect on your health. Well, it's the same thing with plants, right? How much is the microbiome that's infiltrating the plant? What does that do? We're finding it's actually, it does a lot. <laughs> on this episode of the American Scientist podcast, the genes behind ecosystems, I'm Fenella Saunders. To feed our growing population, scientists have, for decades, centuries even, been observing the differences in plants, crossbreeding them, and discovering ways to increase crop yields. More recently, though, scientists have been able to look not only at the phenotype of plants, the observable differences between plants of the same species, they've also been able to look at the genotypes, the whole genomes of plants. Along the way, scientists have identified that plants of the same species, meaning they can interbreed, can be genetically adapted to the local environments they live in. These kinds of differences in plants, plants of the same species, are called ecotypes. So for example, there could be a wet ecotype of a plant that takes advantage of a rainy environment and a dry ecotype that can better survive droughts. Well, it turns out that the different populations of microbes that live in and around plants from different ecotypes can make an enormous difference in crop yields too. We have a 30% increase in growth. Now, this is done in the greenhouse, but clearly the potential is there for a big impact from the microbes. That's Loretta Johnson, a plant ecologist who is seeking to understand the genetic mechanisms that underlie how organisms adapt to their environments. Johnson is also co-director of the Ecological Genomics Institute of Kansas State University. So to start our interview, I asked her how she came to study the genes behind ecosystems. Here's our interview, which has been edited for length and clarity. I started out, I had a very different trajectory. I started out in a very traditional ecology field, and in particular, very narrow part of ecology, ecosystem ecology. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was trained as. And I continued that work until about 2005. And then I realized with all of the genetic sequences and genome sequences in the tools that were becoming available, then I thought, wouldn't it be great to combine ecology and genomics? And so that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 15 years is, and it seems a long time now, <laughs> but combining ecology and genomics. So using genomic tools to help understand how plants respond to the environment and how they might respond to changes in the environment. Seems like you focus on a specific plant species, which is the big blue stem. Big blue stem, yes. Why did you focus on that particular species? Well, it's ecologically is very important. So it's the dominant grass of the prairies and can make up 70% of the biomass. So it really controls the whole structure and function of the prairie. So that's a big one. Ecologically, it's dominant and has effects throughout the ecosystem and communities. Then it's also a dominant grass for forage. It's the preferred forage for cattle. And grazing cattle is a big deal here and huge in terms of the economic impact. It's like $8 billion a year that's generated from cattle sales. And many of these cattle are grazed on tall grass prairie before they say go to feedlots or whatever. So it's a very important forage grass. And also it's widely used in restoration. 
we have this program called the Conservation Reserve Program, which is a, a nationwide program to take marginal lands out of agricultural production and restore it back to grassland. And we have, I think, about 2 million acres here in Kansas. So what we want to know is what are the plants in actually ecotypes of big blue stem that are best suited for restoration? And do we, if we want to anticipate a warmer and a drier climate in the future, what would the best ecotype be? And is there some reason why you would think that that would be a good species moving forward? It does show very strong ecotypic variation. And so if you look at a wet ecotype and a dry ecotype side by side, they're very distinct. They're distinct genetically, they're distinct phenotypically. So what we're studying is, can we take this dry ecotype and plant it farther to the east as the prairie becomes warmer and drier. Now you're using the word ecotype here. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a genetically differentiated form of the same species. So they can still interbreed, but they're genetically distinct. Like maybe different races of dogs or cats or tomatoes, right? They all look a little different, right? But they can still interbreed. I see. Does that mean that it's defined sort of by the ecosystem, how it's sort of genetically expressed? Is it a lot like a phenotype? In the case of our wet and dry ecotypes that we've been studying for, say, 10 years now, they're really quite distinct in terms of the phenotype and in terms of the genotype. And that's been shaped by the very strong rainfall gradient that we have here. And that's why it's kind of so interesting to study it in these grasslands, because we have 500 millimeters of precipitation in western Kansas, and we have 1,200 in Illinois, right? So there's, you know, a huge range of precipitation, and that rainfall regime has been in place for about since the last glaciation, about 10,000 years. And so there's been plenty of time for these different populations to adapt. And that's what we're seeing as ecotypes. So are you looking both at the gene differences and what causes the different expression? Or are you sort of looking at, okay, we have this adaptation. Can we find the gene that causes that? Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're really would like to get at the candidate genes that are involved in this and what makes them different, right? I mean, they can, could still interbreed, but there are clear phenotypic differences and genotypic differences and gene expression differences. And, and what we're trying to do is find out what's the genetic basis for the ecology that we see, right? And so that's really what has been driving me for the last you know, 15 years. So can you talk to me about some of your results? Like what have you been able to kind of put together? Yes. So one of our biggest, you know, I think and most important result, and I guess, you know, I think, you know, if I could have this on my tombstone, you know, that kind of big thing, right? <laughs> so what we found was that the wet ecotype and the dry ecotype differed. They differ in height, right? Because the wet ecotype is this ginormous, plant and the dry ecotype is this little itsy bitsy one, right? And even if they're growing together side by side, they look different. And so what we found is a single nucleotide polymorphism difference in a gene that's called GA1. And so this codes for a part of the gibberellic acid pathway. 
gibberellic acid is a plant hormone that controls things like internode elongation and height, you know. So essentially, we found a genetic difference in a key pathway that can explain why these tall ecotypes are so tall. And then we related it actually with genome association techniques. We related that actually to height. And so there is a different frequency of this GA1 variant in the wet ecotype and in the dry. So as a plant gets taller and taller, you get more of the alternate variant expressed. And so why is height important? Height is important because that basically determines biomass, right? It determines competitiveness. If something is taller, it's going to have more biomass usually, and is also more competitive in the environment because it can capture more light. So that's a really big one, I think. And then some of the other more really recent, like it's not published yet recent, (laughs) is looking at the gene expression differences and between wet ecotypes and dry ecotypes. And we find that Well, these transcription factors, these are kind of master switches that turn, have a whole cascade of downstream effects that turn on many other genes, right? So they're like a master switch. And these ecotypes vary in which master switches even get turned on. And so we think that that's, you know, pretty exciting as well. But that's not submitted yet, but soon will be. You know, what you're saying here about the different grasses having different heights and the genetic basis of that. So it's not a factor of the environment causing the expression. It's an actual difference in genetics. Exactly. Right. Okay. So when you're talking about what your research is trying to do, how are you using this knowledge to better use the different variants in the different applications that you want to apply it to? So we're working with different government organizations like the plant material centers. So that's a part of the USDA and where they are developing new plant materials for planting, right? And so for these conservation reserve lands that are millions and millions of acres, do we want to plant them, say, with one cultivar, or do we want to have it, we want them to be thinking about, you know, maybe you should be, you know, mixing it up, right? Or maybe you want to consider planting the dry ecotype farther to the east, right? I mean, or at least start to anticipate that. So the purpose of the reclamation here is to restore ecosystem or environment when you're when you said that they're sort of reclaiming these marginal farmlands. Yes. So you might remember well I wasn't around either then but the dust bowl. Sure. Okay? Yeah. All right. So that was in the 30s. Uh-huh. So all of these lands in the drier part of the Great Plains was, you know, uh, turned over for agriculture. And it was way too dry there, right? And so, you know, there was a lot of wind erosion. There was a lot of soil erosion in general, right? And so it's in these areas where it's too dry to really support productive crops. Or it might be that it's, you know, too sloping, you know, where there's too much runoff and that kind of thing. So it's much better to have it back into natural prairie, 
right? These prairie grasses are long-lived perennials. So once you get them established, they can store carbon in the roots, take carbon from the atmosphere, as opposed to cropland where the crop is removed and it gets plowed up every year and the soil gets disturbed and the soil can blow away and that kind of thing. So in those areas where there's, you know, marginal lands for crop growth, then these kinds of land restoration is encouraged, right? And and I'm not sure if you know this, but I mean, this is a government program where people get paid to take their land out of agricultural production and put it into grassland for like 10 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is there grazing that goes on when they become grasslands again? Well, only under certain circumstances, you know, one could consider, well, why not? Right. But in general, it's not grazed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're probably just focusing more on restoring. But I gra- mean, grazing is part of the grassland ecosystem. And so one would argue that it, it might be a good thing to do, but that's not <laughs> government policy. Right, I see. Okay. So I'm just curious if when you're looking at the genomic methods that you're using, are you attempting to potentially, maybe in the future, apply any of that knowledge to producing particular cultivars that are better adapted? Not just look at what's being expressed, but actually affect the the grasses themselves by, you know, selection or something like that. Oh, that's not something that we do. Although, you know, there are many people, we have these plant material centers, you know, and that's their kind of bread and butter and that's what they do. I mean, you could argue about, you know, and, and consider like gene editing and, that's not something I think easily done, but certainly, you know, it's it's being widely done in, in other species and other plants and animals. I guess I was not even just in the terms of if you're doing gene editing, but if you were able to find a particular cultivar that was better adapted for whatever reason, if you kind yeah. of more select in that sense. Yes. And I think, I mean, I think with our work, we have found these dry ecotypes that are better adapted, right? In fact, what we could see in our experimental plots that are now ongoing for now 12 years, we've been monitoring these. And what you see is if you look at this over time, that, you know, the weather is quite variable from year to year, right? So we had a big drought in 2012, huge drought, the worst since the 1930s. And the wet ecotype, when it's planted out in western Kansas, totally tanked and never really recovered, whereas the dry ecotype is, you know, going gangbusters. So we have identified these both both phenotypically and genetically through, you know, greenhouse experiments and also these long-term field studies. So let's talk about just for a couple minutes about where this is going, like what research questions are you hoping to kind of look at next? What's the follow-on for you right now? Well, so the follow-on is that we were looking and spent, you know, probably the last 10 years looking at how these ecotypes are adapted to climate, right? So we have the wet ecotypes and the dry ecotypes, but now we have a new grant that is looking at, instead of climate factors being important in adaptation, we're looking at biotic factors, in particular, looking at the microbes. So we've considered that we have these wet and dry ecotypes, and 
clearly the climate is important, but how much of this phenotype is due to the microbes that are growing there, right? And, and so what are these microbes doing? They're microbes that are on the leaves, on the roots, inside the stems. And so what we're looking at now is how much, so do you have ecotypes like a wet ecotype? Does that grow best with its wet microbes? Or do you have a dry ecotype and does it grow best with the dry microbes? Or does the, the dry ecotype, does that tank when it's got the wrong microbes? And so that's what we're looking at. And so we've got a, a project that we're now a couple of years in, and we see that the dry ecotype with the dry microbes, we have a 30% increase in growth. Now, this is done in the greenhouse, but clearly the potential is there for a big impact from the microbes. And we don't know exactly, and we're, we'll be sequencing the microbes. We have sequenced the microbes, and we're also going to be looking at gene expression differences, right, um, in the microbes and also in these ecotypes. And so it could be that maybe, and as you might expect, it's not just climate that is the only controlling factor in how plants grow, but how the living environment around it, its neighbors, competitors, its microbes, how, how much do they contribute? It does seem like, you know, there's, there's a whole lot going on under the soil. Just you like, you know, what they're finding with the microbes in your gut or the microbes, you know, and how much that controls, you know, your metabolism, right? You know, these gut microbes. Well, it's the same thing with plants, right? How much is the microbiome that's infiltrating the plant? What does that do? We're finding it's actually, it does a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's surprising, so... Um, right. We're pretty excited about that. I mean, it seems like you could be establishing protocols that could be used in other environments potentially, or I mean, I'm sure that this kind of ecological genomics affects all environments, not just where you are. Of course. And it's, you know, widely used now, mainly because it's so available you know, the genome sequences, right? If you have a plant with a relatively small genome, you could sequence those genomes, right? And that'd be really easy to do now, right? 15 years ago, it would have seemed impossible, but it's all possible now. So we can get at, so this can be done. It's not just with grasses and, and tall grass prairie in the Great Plains. This could be done anywhere and people are doing it. They are catching on and doing it. Yeah, for sure. That was Loretta Johnson speaking with me about her research on ecological genomics. For a different excerpt of our interview, read my Q&A with Johnson in the September-October 2022 issue of American Scientist or online at www.americanscientist.org. The article is titled, The Genes Behind Ecosystems. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was edited and produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Fenella Saunders. Thanks for joining us.